we have been lo having lots of hedge cools on, on uh, commemorations over the last few years, thank God. Uh, one that hasn't really come up for much notice is this one, the 50th anniversary of the extension of uh, free education. I'll put that in quotation marks, free secondary level education. On the 10th of September, 1867, Minister for Education, Don O'Malley, announced a scheme for free secondary education, much to the surprise of his cabinet colleagues and of the Department of Finance in particular. But once word got out, there was no going back. Expectations had been raised, and the public response was hugely uh, supportive. Within a decade, participation rates at second level had doubled. But to what extent was the system subsidized before the announcement? To what extent has it been free since? And beyond education, what was its effect socially and economically? Now, to discuss these and related questions, we're joined by John Walsh, uh, an educationalist uh, in the middle here, Frank Barry, uh, an economist, and Carl Holohan, uh, a, a historian, uh, all of them from Trinity College. I'm not sure how we got away with such an unbalanced That's panel, but yeah. nobody has objected <laughs> yet. Um, now, John, um, you're the, you're the uh, education expert before we talk about the extension of free education, uh, quote unquote, or not, um, give us an idea of what the second level education system was, uh, you know, up to the 1960s. How had it evolved? And we're talking in particular about religious, religious schools of sure. all denominations, but yeah. Catholic mainly. Just fill us in on how it had developed, because I think it's something maybe people aren't aware of, uh, where it came from. Yeah, sure. Well, th thanks, Tommy, and thanks for the thanks for the invitation. I should say um, I'm also a historian, so um, the panel is actually even more imbalanced than than Tommy thought. Um, but I'm very happy to be here. Uh, so, I mean, the I suppose the second level system in Ireland, um, say from the um, late, uh, didn't change a great deal from the late 1800s. Um, when the intermediate schools were set up under British rule to uh, the 1950s. And it was very much a traditional system. Um, it was a state-aided system in the, rather than a state-provided one uh, in the sense that it was, it was um, mainly provided by private uh, interests and especially by the Catholic Church. Uh, Catholic religious orders loom very large uh, within it. It was also a very divided system because it was split between um, roughly on a two-to-one ratio between uh, religious um, secondary schools, uh, usually run by religious orders, by, um, by diocesan clergy, uh, or more rarely by, by uh, boarding schools. Many Protestant schools were, were, were boarding schools. Um, on, on the one side and on the other side was the Protestant boarding schools, the fees were high because boarding school fees were higher anyway. And uh, there would it also been uh, scholarships, presumably? The scholarships were quite poor. Okay, so um, the scho minimum scholarships, numbers of Yeah, scholarships tended to be quite limited uh, up to the... There was no central government funding for scholarships. Scholarships were funded entirely from local authority rates. So how generous a scholarship was depended on whether a council was willing to strike a rate. And this is the... I don't, some people here will probably remember the rates. I, I, I don't. They're before my time. But uh, like the, the, so the, the councils would charge a rate, a household rate, and they could increase the rate um, to provide an additional rate for education. Right. Or they could put an extra penny on the rate for education. But that was often very unpopular with the ratepayers. Yeah. Um, and education, you know, wasn't very highly valued necessarily up to the 1950s. So that was so that was a very kind of um, a very uh, precarious source of funding. It, it does strike you as a kind of a, a very ad hoc setup with no central. 
There wasn't policy. any. Yeah, the, the the government did not. The, the well, the central government had some involvement in vocational education. It built vocational schools. There was a vocational education act that regulated the the vocational schools, and um, so the state the state was involved there um, to some extent. But the secondary schools, which were two two thirds, accounted for two thirds of the school going population, they were private schools. Uh, they were they, they the government influenced teacher salaries. It influenced. But they paid teacher the, salaries. Not completely. There, okay. there, there was a basic salary. Salary was paid partly by the government. Um, there was a there was a, a basic salary paid by the uh, managers of the schools, and then there was also an incremental salary which was paid by the state. Uh, so effectively, teachers in secondary schools were getting their salaries from two different sources. Yeah, but that means um, that not only was this system discriminatory, you know, for those who could afford it, it yeah. was also subsidised. It was, it, was, it was a state-subsidised system, uh, but, only to, to, but only to a limited extent. So there's a, sta a state subsidies towards, towards teacher salaries, um, and the state uh, gave a limited number of grants, for example, particularly grants towards students who were good at Irish. Right. Could could get grants from the Department of Education. Otherwise, there was no there was no regular state support to secondary schools. There was no capital funding, so the state didn't contribute to the building of secondary schools at all before 1962. Right. So state so the, it was driven very much. It was run and driven, and to a large extent funded by the um, by the churches and particularly by the Catholic. Could it be said though that, <clears throat> that just not just in funding, but the Catholic Church was the was the the brains behind the whole thing. I mean, the Catholic Church gets criticised, mm. you know, John Charles McQuaid for, for being involved in everything. But the point is, you can't blame them for, for at least having some sort of a policy. Well, what happened was the state had, and this happened under the British uh, regime initially, the state had delegated huge areas of social policy to the churches. And it had effectively abdicated control over mm. areas of social mm. policy. You know, the care of children was one, health care to some extent, but particularly secondary education. Secondary education was the Catholic Church's domain, um, and <clears throat> the state was very wary of interfering. Right. Uh, the department did not regard there was a secondary education branch in the department, but its functions were very limited. Uh, and up, up to the late 1960s, there's a great, great, great. <clears throat> there was there was an assumption that secondary education was private. There's a great, great quote from a, a Dominican nun, Mother, Mother Jordana Roach in 1966, when a departmental inspector called to a secondary school in Wexford, and she wrote to the archbishop to say, well, you know, please make a protest about this. What, what's happening here? What kind of secondary system do we have? Is it no longer private? Why do we have state inspectors calling to secondary schools? Right. So that, that showed the kind of, there was a very traditionalist mentality that the, the, <clears throat> the state was perceived to have only a very limited and subordinate role. And this role was to provide funding, presumably. Provide some, money. Some of the funding. Some, yeah. some, some funding, yeah. Frank, can I move on to you? Um, could you just talk to us a little bit about the, the, the economic context of all of this, right? Uh, what sort of an economy did we have at the time? So until the, um, basically the early 60s, we had a, quite an unsophisticated economy. Um, so at independence, you know, the economy was dominated by agriculture. And to the extent that, uh, that education was talked about in most reports up in, until the late 1950s, when education was discussed, it was typically education to do with agriculture and the need to boost agricultural productivity. It was only really with a famous report called Investment in Education that, that directly triggered the free education scheme that was published in 1965 that we began to think about education as a way for 
a, a country to invest in its own future. So that, that was the significance of the title of that document, Investment in Education. So we had an, an unsophisticated economy. To the extent that we had a manufacturing sector in the 1920s, it was almost exclusively owned by Protestant families. And until the 1960s, most Irish indigenous industry, that we, the term that we use to distinguish it from foreign-owned industry, um, was, you know, was, could be categorised as either Protestant or Catholic. So in the 20s, manufacturing was almost exclusively Protestant-owned. So you had mentioned Jacobs earlier on, which was yeah. a Quaker family, Guinness, the whiskey firms and, and so on, um, were all Protestant-owned. And, and, and the Protestants were better educated than the Catholics from independence. And amazingly, though, we don't have hard data on the extent to which different religions were the educational attainment of different religions until the 1966 census. And again, that was a result of this document, Investment in Education, because there's an amazing appendix to that report. That was an OECD-funded report that was carried out by Irish analysts, you know, educationalists and and economists. There's an appendix in there that looks at the educational attainment. This is published in 1965 of the US, Israel, Japan and 14 European countries, including seven from behind the Iron Curtain. And it talks about the educational attainment in all these societies. And you're looking through it for the Irish data and it's not available because that wasn't even collected until the 1966 census. So, okay, so, so management in the Protestant firms was almost exclusively held within the Protestant denominations, as we know, say, everybody knows that about Guinness, for example, to become a manager in Guinness, or a lot of the other Protestant firms you know, needed to be Protestant. And then, even though Fianna Fáil, which came into power, of course, in 1932 and put up protectionist barriers to stimulate domestic industry, a lot of the industry that came in, particularly the big firms, were foreign firms like Cadbury's, and, uh, and uh, Roundtree and you know, many other names that will be familiar to people. And the management of these firms tended to be uh, foreigners you know, who would come in primarily from England. So there wasn't a need really to create a man managerial class. So in that sense, you know, education wasn't perceived as necessary so was, for the it was functioning adequate. of the economy. It was a cosy system that was it, adequate for its needs. It, I suppose you could say that, yeah, and it really was, I know we're going to go on to this, it was with the opening up of the economy, the liberalisation of the economy in the 50s and 60s, that people began to perceive a need for a more educated labour force to, in order to be able to, for the economy to sustain more complex or more sophisticated industries. Just hold that thought for a second, Frank. I want to go on to, to Carol, right? Um, what was it like then for young people, right? I mean obviously limited um, education opportunities, limited employment opportunities. And I what, suppose, what do people do? <laughs> I suppose Frank's demonstrated how they are connected and that shift then in the 60s that we'll move on to uh, is a period when you know, the government no longer sees emigration as a safety valve uh, to release people um, who can't find jobs in Ireland and that if you release them uh, through emigration, well, then they don't become a source of discontent or political discontent. They're not a drain on the exchequer through unemployment assistance. But it's in that period then of the late 50s, early 60s, that they realise the prospect for recovery of the Irish economy doesn't exist if you don't have people 
So instead of letting them go, you're going to have to keep them and, and invest in them. Just before you move on, Carol, you said there that you know, emigration is a safety valve. Mm -hmm. Is that a policy or just an assumption? I suppose it's not a form of policy. Um, and I, in terms of debates on emigration, you used to have politicians express various views. So there's a commission on uh, emigration and population problems uh, published in the, the late 40s, early 50s. And you see that view that, well, this is a safety valve and it enables a slightly higher standard of living amongst the people who remain by not having this large population. And, but for others, it is a social evil and it is a crisis that young people leave. Like so many young people leave in the 50s, um, it takes away the dynamism from your society and means mm. you have quite a lot of dependence, older and younger. So in terms of options for young people, I suppose um, like the high rates of emigration in the 50s, you're looking at 40,000 a year. And it can be very hard to figure out the age of people who go because you have free entry into to Britain. But during the war, you have a war permit system, so you can figure out the age. Mm -hmm. So 55% are aged 16 to 24, so they're young. Right. And so if you don't emigrate then and you stay at home, I suppose Frank's talked about the kind of manufacturing uh, industries that are in Ireland. Uh, so there's a certain amount of manufacturing jobs, but they, you know, the number employed in that is falling throughout the 50s. The 50s is when Ireland becomes relatively poorer because Europe and Britain, those economies are doing better. Uh, but the other option, of course, is to work on the land. And many young people would have been relatives assisting on their father's farm or another family member's farm. And they wouldn't have had uh, maybe even access to regular money wages. And mm. um, is the big um, employer then for, for women. But that's also not really in demand, this technical operation. In terms of domestic service. It's also that young people are rejecting these jobs. So they're emigrating in favor of different jobs. Even in terms of manufacturing, you'll get a better wage in Britain. Uh, wages are nearly two thirds what they are in Ireland. And young people are aware of that because they have kind of close connections with their peers who've gone over and back. And I suppose to feed that back into the education system then, we think of a vocational education, a secondary school education. If people see education as a vehicle to a job, like Ireland is a place without a strong industrial base. So a technical education is a road to nowhere. Is a road to nowhere. Yeah. So a secondary school education has this huge status because it's a road to a white collar job. And actually in the fifties, if you look at the professions, they rise slightly in terms of the numbers employed. Commerce kind of holds its position. So I suppose in terms of aspirations and people's attitudes to different types of education, the secondary school system just has this enormous status because I suppose apart from the fact that Ireland doesn't have a strong industrial base that there isn't great manufacturing jobs for you to go into that it's a road to emigration you also have a I suppose the rhetorical valorization of rural Ireland rural life and the type of factory jobs that are available then are not held in high esteem by mm, many sections mm. of the population and their strong class connotations and particularly amongst women um, and there's a strong demand, even through the 60s, for females to work in factories. And it's not the jobs that young girls aspire right. to. Now, they will take them, but it's not the jobs that maybe their parents aspire them to. Right. So, I mean, again, it, it just seems like a pretty cosy system, a self-perpetuating system. So if you're the son of a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, there's very little competition. You know, once you, you go to your secondary school, you get into university, it's, it's, it's easy peasy. Yeah, I suppose it's a relatively small 
but it's, but it's, but it's a system that's designed to per perpetuate itself. Most systems and are. I, I, and I'm assuming then that there would be an assumption in amongst a lot of people that that's just the way things are. I you think know, that's a, sort of a fatalistic attitude. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about this is the way things are and this is the norm. And I suppose one major shift uh, in Europe is World War II and the expansion of welfare states after that, the expansion of education systems in the 1940s and even third level education by the 1960s. And part of that is a reimagining of the social contract between a government and its people. So in 63, the Robbins Report on Higher Education in the UK, they talk about how these are the children of the generation who sacrificed during the war. And if their children are able to go on to third level, wouldn't it be terrible to deny them that? But you don't have any sense of that mm. in Ireland. Frank, let's just, I want to move on to the, the, you know, why the policy changed, right? But Frank, just, can I go to you, what sort of a bottleneck does that lack of edu education opportunities represent in economic terms? So it, it, it means that you can't develop into more sophisticated industries. Um, but there, the structure of the economy with, you know, heavy duty protectionism, you know, preventing imports from coming in in order to create opportunities for industries to emerge here. We clearly couldn't develop the kind of sophisticated, what are called capital goods industries, the, the, the industries that you need, uh, that, that produce machinery. Um, we didn't have the kind of sophisticated economy the capital or the educational resources or the research and development and so on to develop these industries. So even if our economy grew as it did at various times in, you know, we had quite strong economic growth in the 1930s, given that it was the context of the Great Depression, given that we still couldn't produce those kind of industries, any growth in the domestic economy would suck in imports of raw materials and of machinery and so on. So we, we face this balance of payments constraint and unless we change the structure of the economy dramatically as happened essentially in the beginning of the 1960s, that balance of payments constraint was always going to constrain the economy. It simply couldn't grow beyond that constraint. So what you're saying then, education is the, is the magic ingredient? It, no, it, no, it, I, no, I, no, I, no I, I think the magic ingredient really is the, the move away from protectionism mm. to trade liberalisation. Right. Because that removes the balance of payments constraint. Because if you can develop exporting industries, then that relaxes the balance of payments. But, but you need a so workforce that, that can add value. No, right. well, well, sorry, I mean, I, I, I put it the other way around. I yeah. think it was the liberalisation of the economy. Now, just how that took place, everybody thinks this is Whitaker and Lamas. In fact, you know, that's a gross misrepresentation of, of how it worked. It was the first inter-party government. Sorry, this is a hobby horse of mine. I just have to take a minute. Right first inter-party government set up the IDA in 1949. After a few years, it was left alone to figure out its own raison d'etre. And it thought, it thought in the post-war period, American investment was now available in a way before, before the Second World War, it had solely been British investment. And of course, Finnefold was always relatively hostile to British investment. Now American investment was available. So the IDA began to, began to see, oh, there's a possibility of pulling American investment into the economy. In 1956, we had the introduction of what remains to, the, to this day, the low corporation tax regime. That started to suck in foreign direct investment. And the Whitaker-Lamas initiative really followed 
on from that then. Once we had these foreign firms coming in here, um, they said, okay, well, now we can liberalize the economy because we have this alternative source of job creation. So we started to get um, foreign industry coming in. Then it was realized very rapidly that we need a more educated labor force to be able to sustain these more complex industries. So Lieber is still here in Killarney, a German crane manufacturer that came here in 1959. That was a major coup for the IDA and it was one of these kind of one of these early capital goods producing industries that came in. So it was realized then at that time that we need a more educated labor force in, a, in order to be able to develop these more sophisticated industries. So that's, that's, the, that's the logic that I would see. So John, when does this begin to impact on education policies? Yeah, well, I suppose to follow up what Frank was saying, education didn't really figure in the, the kind of nationalist, conservative nationalist narrative of the early Irish state. Education was seen as a route to achieve religious and cultural objectives. And then it's with, with the sort of the economic policy. Can I just stop you there, John, for yeah, a minute? Yeah. What's wrong with that? Uh, well, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, depending on what the religious and cultural objectives are, um, and depending on whether uh, they lead to education being valued, which in this, no, the, instance, no, see, which in this instance they didn't. No, the point of making so education here is wasn't we, we, particularly valued, even though it was, it was seen as a way of reviving the Irish language. It was seen as a way of inculcating the Catholic religion, but that didn't. But it was also it, it, it also didn't really feature on the priorities of policymakers, except where it concerned those two objectives. So I suppose what I'm saying, and if I can explain it better, was that education was conceptualised in a very narrow and static fashion. No, the reason I'm saying this, uh, I yeah, threw that in, right, yeah. is that we've been talking here purely about economics and mm. we've been talking in a utilitarian fashion, right? I mean, did, did, did it dawn on anybody that education should be expanded for its own sake, you know, to raise the cultural level of people? Uh, actually, I... I oh, some, is that... Is that yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think, I, I think the, the motivations for expanding education in the 1960s were not purely economic. Yeah. Right. Like the economic yeah. motives were certainly a factor. I mean, there's no question about that, that the impact of the economic changes both provided more money for education and heightened, it was, it was in the second program, the economic importance of education was referenced for the first time. But there was also a very powerful um, uh, political constituency in favour of education from the 1960s on, and that was based on satisfying social demand. There was a feeling that uh, there was a, a real societal demand for education. There were a whole series of um, civil society groups, uh, Turum, which was a, 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 think, ta a think tank, um, promoted a number of policy, put out a number of policy documents in education. Political parties picked up education as a, as a priority. The Labour Party produced a policy document, Challenge and Change in Education, in 1963. It was the first comprehensive policy document by any party. Finnegal then picked it up. So education became the subject of political competition. And there was a, there, I, I, and I think throughout the 1960s, Lamas said it, other policymakers said it, Paddy Hillary, among others, that education was now perceived as both having individual benefits and societal benefits and, and they were very careful to say that you know we value the individual benefits but it's also beneficial to society. What was the church's attitude to this because obviously this discussion has um, taken place. I suppose in, I think it's important not to treat the Catholic Church as monolithic. It didn't have one attitude or one response to it. Uh, I think there were differences between Except individual. In Dublin. 
Uh, well, yeah, 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 true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, very, very true. But uh, there, there were differences between individual bishops and there were differences between religious orders. And, uh, you know, not to sort of defend John Charles McQuaid, but actually John Charles McQuaid was much more in favour of free second level education than most of the religious managers and religious orders in his diocese, right. who were dead set against it and said, no, we're not doing this without getting an act of the Oireachtas to defend the autonomy of our schools. And McQuaid said, well, you may think that, but in fact, it's impossible for us to oppose it. So you have to do it. Uh, but the, 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 the predominant reaction of the Catholic bishops to the educational policy changes was one of suspicion. Uh, I think Paddy Hillary, as Minister for Education, had a meeting with uh, Conway, Cardinal Conway, who was perceived as a great modernizer uh, in the Catholic Church. Absolute nonsense, in my view. Uh, deeply conservative individual, uh, almost as conservative as McQuaid in many respects, but very skillful PR man and sold himself as a kind of modernizer. Um, uh, but Conway, uh, Conway said to him, well, I, you know, I see you're a young man and you want, to, you want to make a name for yourself and that's what this is all about. Uh, and then uh, another bishop, uh, Vincent Hanley in, in El Finn, uh, looked at the proposal for comprehensive schools, for introducing comprehensive schools for the first time and said, this is a revolutionary step. This is the Irish state getting involved in second level education, in providing, <clears throat> combining academic and vocational education for the first time. This is a revolutionary step. Can I say something possibly heretical here? I mean, given, <coughs> given you know, the record, of, and I'm, I had my own limited involvement in setting up an Educate Together uh, school, yeah, yeah. Um, I would almost be tempted to say, like, to keep the state as far away from education as possible, right, in some cases, right? <coughs> Mm. No, what do you that? You know, do you know what I mean? Like that, that, that you're, you're, the Department of Education, because of its history, because it wasn't a policy-driven department, right? Mm. You could argue it was the last institution you'd put in charge of any education system. Well, but the, I mean, the in the 1960s and 70s, it was a policy-driven department. Okay. okay. Yeah, I mean, we, we like the uh, whatever about the department today. I mean, the department isn't. Uh, there was a there was a joke made by I think. J.J. O'Mara was a classicist in UCD, and he had, he had your view of the Department of Education, and he expressed it in 1958 when he said, well, well, you know, the Department of Education is like the natural law. It seems to be immutable. Uh, there's no changes whatsoever. It's like a stagnant pond, and if you throw a stone into the stagnant pond, the, the stone will disappear. And actually, that wasn't unfair as a commentary on the conservatism of the department, the conservatism of the senior officials up to the 1950s. But the department, in the, in the, the department and the state more generally in the 60s and 70s is a major engine of policy change. Um, I don't know that, I mean, Educate Together has a more, Educate Together, I think, understandably, hasn't had very positive experiences with, with the department. We might come back recently, to that. But that that's later. a different issue, yeah. John, I just want, and, and <clears throat> Carl, you can come in this as well, just on, on like, how was it introduced, right? Because this, this is one of these, you know, the, the, the Don O'Malley mm. does a solar run, or did he? I mean, was it, no. was it a solar run? Uh, well, you know, he, he did, I think he did, uh, yeah, this is, he, he did do a solo run. But there were a lot of, there's a lot of um, urban there's a lot of urban myths around it. There's a famous story which circulated in the department that O'Malley was drunk, and that he went to a meeting of journalists while in a state of inebriation and uh, had agreed a limited 
He'd spoken to Lamas about the changes, and Lamas had uh, hinted to him that he could make an announcement, but that he that in a state of inebriation, he went much further than he agreed with Lamas, and he announced free post-primary education. And it's a great story, but it's completely untrue. Uh, it was coldly premeditated. I mean, firstly, he was speaking to a group of journalists, so he knew exactly what would happen. He'd get a lot of publicity in Sunday and, and Monday papers, as it then was, pre-internet, where did he go? The print media was really important. So it was, it was very carefully planned. Uh, in fair, the department had plans for free second-level education, which they, they, they hoped to bring in in 1970, at the same time as they increased the, um, the school leaving age from 14 to 15. So to that extent, it, it wasn't a solar run. There was a plan to, to, to do it. But what O'Malley kind of upended was all the planning and the timing. So what might have been a gradual change brought in over a number of years, O'Malley announced and then they, 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 he preempted the effectively government and Department of Finance consideration of it, and the whole the whole policy change had to be brought in in a single year. But I mean, the opt optics look good for him because he made it look like a solar run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. In fairness, it, it, in terms of timing, it was a solar run. Right. But I suppose there was some. I suppose what I'd point to is there's a wider context. Uh, for it, and it's important not to underestimate the wider context. And part of the wider context was the investment in education report, which Frank has written on as well, which was really critical of the system of the of the existing educational system, and uh, policies developed by Lamas and Hillary uh, before O'Malley. So it wasn't just about O'Malley, I suppose. That's what I'd say. Just by the way, just, I, I forgot to mention at the start that, that you know we, this is a hedge school, and, and the, the audience uh, is expected to participate. I actually would be interested in any contributions uh, from people who, who, who will admit to have been around in, in 1966. I can just about remember it, because I remember this as this was like liberation. Mm. I mean, you can't underestimate. Forget about the, sure. the economics of it, mm. right? The sense of, say, for small town Ireland, like you know people, for the first time, would have a chance to, to go to second level education. And, and I, my assumption always was women in particular would benefit from this. Because you know, if it was a situation, who, who would get the, the money to go to college? You know, uh, the, the girls in the family would tend to be uh, down the pecking order, right? So I'm just interested in any, any contributions from the floor on this, like about the, just the psychological impact uh, that this had at that time. We, ha we have a radio mic, um, if you just use their yeah, just, just, if you just use the mic, so this, this is being recorded, by the way, so. It's just so fu funny, too, um, because I can remember it. Although I only looked like I'm 39, I was actually going to <laughs> secondary school <laughs> like, in 1967. Like I was about to transition to secondary school. I lived under, and it's amazing that you put um, uh, flesh on all the memories that I have, because uh, I was in Drumcondra in the north side, and I was scheduled to go to the Holy Faith class seven. But the Holy Faith weren't coming in. They weren't buying into it. Oh, and I can remember at the time, um, big discussion in my house, and the nun actually saying to my parents, we don't want the riffraff in our school, in the nuns, you know, uh, the riffraff will go to the tech, we don't want them in our school. So my, my mother wasn't a big fan of the Catholic Church, so uh, she decided that I would go to Sandy Mount High, which had fellas. <laughs> you know, so I was going to have to get a bus all the way across town and they had fellas. And now it's amazing to think that John Charles was the man who ruined my life. I didn't get to see a fella for three years after that because I did go to Glasnevin. The Glasnevin were uh, made to, to flip and they actually let, um, they let us in for free. Yeah, so right. it's great. It's good to think that John Charles ruined my life and uh, in common with a lot of others. <laughs> yeah, Frank, over there, yeah. Uh, well, I remember 66 and I remember 56, but uh, 
No, I, I uh, didn't go to secondary education. I finished uh, school at 14 and within six months I was working 72 hours a week in a builder's providers. But uh, a lot of the people I went to school with uh, who could afford it, the sons of teachers and police and business people and so on, uh, they went on to secondary school and uh, the, a lot of them were successful in different ways. There were two particular families who had uh, who didn't have uh, very much brains, we'll say. And they finished up one pair of brothers in the 1980s sold 10% uh, of a company they had set up for £4 million, which meant they were worth uh, 40 million, and there was another uh, fellow who was—he was a couple of glasses behind me, and he couldn't read or write his name, and uh, he became one of the biggest road-building contractors in the country. Mm -hmm. Now, as against that, now in case you think there were um, one, another one became a professor of medicine. Uh, another man I sat beside in school, Michael Snee, he became a senior engineer uh, with the ESB and was one of those seconded to go to America uh, to, to uh, train for the gas company, for the control of gas flows from Kinsale Head and so on at the time. But uh, I remember the time that, that the secondary education came along and then there was the free transport as well. Yeah, that's, that's a big issue, yeah. And in the country that was a very big issue. Now, there's another thing... Uh, Back in the 60s, I, I was uh, down in West Cork and I met a man called Sam Levis and he had a couple of minibuses and his main work, he had a garage and so on, but his main uh, income, he told me, was from driving uh, Protestant children, pupils, to school, both national and secondary schools. And they had that free transport uh, since it was included as, as part of the terms of the, the treaty. Yeah. That Protestants living in rural Ireland would have free transport. Just, yeah, Frank, what about the free transport? Yeah, uh, sorry, well, I, I don't think the treaty was part of the free education system. That's right. Yeah, so part and parcel of it was free, trans free transport for rural children to get to school. Yeah, so yeah. that was a huge, hugely important kind of social yeah. impact. Yeah, just... I think that the so-called free education had a huge impact for women. Yeah. Um, I began teaching in 1971 in Ballyfermot. At that time, there was one group in sixth year and 10 groups in first year. Mm -hmm. So the impact was enormous. Um, about three years later, I went to teach in Wexford and the free transport system or the bus transport system had a huge impact because up to then, um, if you lived outside urban areas, you, you had to be able to afford a boarding school or have a relative, a nun, it would therefore be cheaper for you to go to school or, um, be, or have family to stay within the town to provide digs. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have any of those, you didn't get to second level schools, right. full stop. And even in a town like Wexford, even within the town, boys got a preference for second level, not a nice third subject. level. No, yeah. yeah, girls didn't on yeah. the whole. So it had a huge impact for women. Um, John, could I just say, could this be described as Fianna Fáil's finest hour? Bar maybe Dev's response to Churchill in 1945, and that no economic impact whatsoever. No, no, seriously. 
Yeah, I think um, I think um, I, I think it was it was definitely O'Malley's finest hour, uh, and like I, I, it, it was it was as you said, I think it had it had a massive impact, and uh, there's no question it was a it was a very egalitarian measure, and he, he justified it on that basis. It's interesting to see that the, the justification that O'Malley gave for free education wasn't mainly economic. It was actually a social justice um, uh, you know, kind of argument. He said it was a dark stain on the national conscience that a third of, a third of the, um, the children weren't able to go to, to second-level education. I'm presuming and, that, that those, think, those people excluded felt stigmatised by this. Well, I don't know about that. Actually, um, I mean, if you're coming, it, 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 I suppose it was a changing society. So there was an increasing demand for, mm. for second level education. And they, they underestimated the demands. So they, they, they reckoned that about 7,000, there'd been an increase of 7,000 in September 1967. And it was actually 15,000. So they were, that the numbers just, they were, they were, the Department of Education was, was not the first time they've got their projections wrong, but uh, as we, anyone has anything to do with higher education knows, but they, they got the, I mean, they, they got that wrong and they were just amazed by the numbers. So there was clearly a pent up social demand for people to... to Frank, yeah, so what was the, what was the yeah. economic... Well, Frank, can I just ask John about this? Because there's, there's so many urban, urban legends around this. So one that I've heard was that O'Malley heard that it was going... Fine, Fine Gael were about to announce this as a policy measure. Have you heard that? I probably read yeah, it in your book, actually. That's their, yeah, no, that's, um, that's something that Gareth Fitzgerald used to talk about. That's right. No, the, I, I think, yeah, he, he had said Fine Gael, when they launched the Just Society, hadn't had any proposals in education when they launched the Just Society in 1965, which maybe does go back to your point about, you know, uh, the kind of party fin parties Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael were in the, in the 1960s. Yeah. But they, they, were, they, had, they were about to remedy that, and Gareth Fitzgerald had headed a Fine Gael committee that was about to launch a policy document on education. Yeah. And definitely part of the reason for the timing of the announcement was to preempt Fine Gael. Right. But I think for O'Malley, that was almost an excuse. He wanted to do it. Right. And, and he would have seized on any, any reason to do it. And, this was and, his way to... And, and one, one other urban legend that I'm, I'm sure you've heard. So O'Malley, everybody knows, was a mega drinker, right? And yeah. one of his buddies was John Healy, the journalist. And Healy wrote a, um, a, an article in memoriam of O'Malley 20 years after O'Malley's death. And he describes a story that O'Malley told him that, and so O'Malley said he had gone to Lamas. Now, Jack Lynch, who was Minister for Finance, was abroad when, the, when mm. O'Malley made the announcement and came home furious. So he certainly had not run it by the Department of Finance, but Healy said he did run it by Lamas in 1966, the year before the announcement. The announcement was 67, right? 66. Yeah. Oh, was it 66? September 1966. Then it was okay. introduced in 67. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, the way Healy tells the story that he got from O'Malley was Lamas took out his pen. So O'Malley was proposing that it was going to be means tested. Yeah. Uh, and Lamas drove his pen through that phrase and said, this is 1966, <laughs> cherish all the nation of the children equally, we'll get rid of that bit. So that's, anyway, that's yeah. whether Healy is a reliable witness or not, I don't know. But anyway, it's, it's fantastic. There's so many urban legends about, about, the, about the phenomenon. How was it financed at the time, though? I mean... General taxation, General taxation, as far as I know. Yeah. yeah, it was financed through through through. It was financed through taxation, there were, or taxation or borrowing. There was no um, there was no um, like it, it, like there was no suggestion that there was a particular funding source for it. It would just be financed, and that was one of the complaints. 
um, it was first Jack Lynch and then Charlie High was Minister for Finance. And the Department of Finance tried either to delay it or to stop it under both ministers. And one of the arguments they said was that, well, this means an addition of at least three million to the education estimates uh, in the next financial year. We can't have that. In fact, that was a gross underestimation. It was, it was, I think, more like six million in the end. But it was, it was understood that it would be financed from general taxation. Now, Carol, what, what impact did this have then uh, amongst the, the, the youth of the country? Uh, I suppose maybe to go back to the point about whether it's Fianna Fáil's greatest mm. hour or not. You know, it is 1966, and it's a little bit like the changes in the economy that are assigned to, lit to Le Mans and Whitaker that there's this great innovation, same as mm. O'Malley, there's this great innovation. Yeah. But in actual fact, we can also read them the other way, that these are uh, initiatives that are incredibly late mm. and mm. that they are, right. they are initiated because mm. they are completely necessary at this point. They're no-brainers, like. They are no-brainers and there is massive public demand. Like, you can see emigration as a demand for a different way of life. The numbers in second in post-primary education from 51 to 61 rise by 40,000. Mm. So people have this demand and are putting their children into education. Yeah. And a way, I, th I think we should stop seeing these governments as innovative and instead incredibly reactive. They're following behind that. You're, you're so arguing in, they're yeah. lagging behind. Yeah. In terms of the economy, because um, of free trade everywhere else, like Ireland has absolutely no choice but to uh, go in that direction, um, and especially when Britain applies to the European Economic Community. In terms of ed education, the demand is coming from below. This is a period when other European countries are expanding their third-level system. There are 14,000 third-level students in 1961 in Ireland. There are 23,000 in 1971, so that's not where the expansion happens. The expansion happens in, in second level, and it's incredibly late. I, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that, and I think often, like, the O'Malley announcement is looked at without looking at the context, and the context was there was massive pressure, both from the social demand that Carol is talking about, and also from other political parties for far-reaching reform in education. So to give one example, I mean, the Labour Party in 1963 produced the first policy document which called for free second-level education. Uh, and uh, so there was, there was pressure on Fianna Fáil, uh, and then Fine Gael were about to produce uh, a policy document which, which called for a version of free uh, education, not, not quite as, as, as radical as, as, as O'Malley did. So I, I don't know that, I don't think it was Fianna Fáil's finest hour. I don't think they were necessarily particularly innovative, but what, what I think what they were was very clever. They were very clever in responding to popular demand, in reading the political, like in reading the political um, kind of climate and in responding to it. So, Frank, when, when does this begin to bear fruit economically? How, so, how can we measure that? Right, yeah. So, so Carol mentioned third level there. I mean, what's, what's interesting to me is that once the throughput through the second you're, system you're started to come out, at the other end, it created huge pressure to expand third level education. And so in the 1970s, we get the emergence of the regional uh, or TCs, the regional technical colleges, now called the Institutes of Technology. These these were essentially formed and expanded hugely over the 70s with with EU money, and uh, and then of course you got huge numbers 
once you had second level under your belt, of course, you could get into third level. So there was huge expansion there as well. So I suppose the, the main economic impact would be seen then when people are coming out of third level. And so that was where you got the big expansion in the 1970s. And, you know, as I say, the RTC system was was largely funded by the EU regional funds. You know, so we have a lot to be thankful for there, I think. Yeah. Anyone? Yeah, Pat. Um, ESF, yeah, the social fund. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, just very briefly, a few points. I'd just like to go back to the beginning of it. Um, I, I think um, when the transition took place from the British to the Irish, Margaret McCourton said that the, the church at the time were almost shocked that there was all the benefits that they had gained under the British, that they weren't challenged at the time. And I, I think the the cosy partnership that existed uh, between the denominational arrangements that were there and by the government remained until uh, basically uh, newer institutional models are introduced later. Um, we talk about free education. Free education in Ireland was effectively introduced in 1930. And it was introduced through the uh, non-fee paying vocational system. Mm -hmm. And I think the way we hang on to this phrase, it's first of all become to mean, oh, it's terrible, we haven't got free education, but of course it was only extended to fees. Now at the time, the vocational system was actually cauterized at Barrett by the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. because they had to give commitments to, uh, they, the, the Department of Education gave commitments that uh, they wouldn't get involved in intermediate education Check. or leaving certificate education. Mm. And so because of that, it, it's only the, the, the major shifts for me to take place uh, around the period of this time are the discussions over new models of schools, over community schools, over comprehensive schools, over new elements of patronage. I, I regard it as a scandal in this country, an absolute scandal. And I, we talk about the poverty, but the poverty of imagination that was there in relation to the importance of economic policy. We're here talking about free education tonight. The social welfare state and its benefits were plain to be seen across the border in Northern Ireland. Many of the political leaders that came forth in the civil rights of the 60s and the 70s were educated through the uh, so through the welfare state, they got free secondary education and they got free third level education. So the mirror image across the border was extraordinarily unflattering. And it, I'm just amazed that the governments at the time, the inertia was just unbelievable. And there were extraordinary inequalities. Now, John referred at the beginning to the uh, Gaelicisation agenda. Yeah. That Gaelicisation agenda meant that in the in the appendix uh, that, that Frank mentioned as well, there were classes in Dublin of 70 All of right. that period. At least. And basically when people went down and looked at the smaller urban rural schools, like uh, particularly if you were in an, a Gaeltuck area, there were nothing, you know, the, the, the extraordinary number of teachers that were there. There were something like 15 teachers from Dublin in training for primary school teaching as recorded in the, in the appendix for statistics. Because all the rest of them were they were brought into preparatory schools for training, you know, sig significantly. So to me, what happens is it couldn't go on any longer. The blatant inequalities that were there and institutionalized both the, both the Gaelicization agenda 
uh, all of these things were hugely, even when they didn't work. And even if you look, when the Israeli state is set up, they managed to make Hebrew a living language. And I regard that as being the, the greatest indication of the failure of the policy that was taken. So I think the, the free education, for me, when I look at it back as a historian, uh, I, I see terrible scandals behind it, the fact that it took so long to do. But, and for me, the outcome of it, as, as far as I'm, when you look at the historical track, it's, it's the new patronage models that emerge. And they have democratized education. They've taken the hostility away from what used to be derogatorily referred to as the tech, mm -hmm. the, the, the model that was introduced in the 1980s of the community college. So the, 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 the significant improvements that have taken place, they can't go back, be traced back to free education in a straight line. It, the other factors come in. And I, I think it's shameful at that stage that it took so long to get it done. Do you respond to that, John? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I very strongly agree with that. I think it's easy to ascribe all of the uh, changes or all of the be benefits in education in the 60s to free education, and that's quite wrong. I mean, if you like, maybe the most radical change in second-level education was the introduction of a common intermediate certificate exam, which meant that vocational, secondary, and then later comprehensive school and, and community school students would all do the same examination, and that vocational school students, for the first time, had access to state exams, because it's true. When the vocational schools were set up, they were excluded from the state exams, the Leaving Cert and the Intermediate Certificate, and the minister gave a commitment to the Catholic bishops that they wouldn't provide general, that they would only provide practical education. And what that did was do extraordinary damage to the potential of vocational education um, and effectively create a, a, almost an apartheid system. Um, where, where vocational schools were, and Carol alludes this, uh, vocational schools were seen by many parents, to some extent wrongly, as a dead end. Um, but the, and that was one of the most radical changes of the 60s, to, 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 to remove that inequality, well, to remove the formal inequality, to create a, a common, as it were, to try and get some parity of esteem for the vocational system, and then the VECs being able to set up community uh, schools and particularly community colleges. John, but just on that point about the, the, the texts, right, as they were called, I mean, I remember when I was in, in sixth class, right, a number of us like, did entrance exams to, you know, my case, Temple Hill College, um, and then those didn't get them went to the tech. You know, it was just assumed that they went to Dundrum mm. Tech, I think it was, right? Um, but it was never clear, like, what the purpose of it was, except to keep them in school until they reached the, 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 the minimum age. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. so it, it, it was a very deeply held view, that. I suppose it also, but the RTCs mm. come that bit later, but until mm. then, there isn't... Uh, vocational school can't take you to third level right. either. Yeah. I suppose yeah, that's yeah. the other thing to realise that once education becomes free for all, well then the power is in third level. Mm, and of course yeah. the middle classes don't have to spend their money on second level anymore because it's free. It frees up their assets to send children to third mm. level. So in a way the kind of the parameters are kind of moved. But I think what's fascinating about vocational education that if the 60s is about Ireland's attempt to industrialise and to grow manufacturing, it is that kind of education which should have been prioritised 
and which should have been invested in. But in the way in which free education works, um, because you have a long-held status with yeah, these secondary yeah. schools and with that classical education, that is the kind of education that people aspire to and that they want as they see that mm. as a vehicle to something more secure than a technical education. But you set up the RTCs then, and you do they do make efforts to yeah. put these technical subjects into these common intermediate certs. Mm. But really, I think you're setting up RTCs at third level, but you don't have a very solid scientific education in second level. And I was in school in, mm. the, in the 90s. It was all about science and all about getting us yeah, up to yeah. speed at second level, because in a way, that's not what happens in the 60s. And I suppose economic policy in some ways can be relatively quick, although you have to deal with lots of vested interests. But educational policy is incredibly slow mm. because of the power of vested interests, but also because of the attitudes of parents and the wider society of what they think education is. Yeah, on the thing of technical education, I, 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 in a previous life, I was a, an apprentice fitter in the ESB. But the ESB set up its own parallel mm. yeah. education programme which is obviously was an, an indictment of whatever else was Absolutely. out there. Yeah. I mean, it was really, really good training, right? Mm -hmm. but, but I'd say bulk, the bulk of the training was, was provided by the board you know, in, within their own training facilities or whatever, and you'd go to Bolton Street or whatever as well. But you know, they, it seemed to be that they had made the decision that they had to do it themselves. Well, I suppose now I'm leaning on John Walsh's book, which is excellent, that you despise <laughs> the politics of uh, educational expansion. Yeah. Um, that in the early days of, I suppose, this rejuvenated government policy towards the economy, they do look at the vocational system in yeah. terms of agricultural education, rural science, and the, there's an agricultural winter school scheme. The winter farm schools. Winter farm yeah, schools. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. with um, linking it more firmly to apprenticeships that mm. apprentices would have to do. Um, I, I'll let you talk about it. Yeah, no, no, that's, I mean, the, I, the, uh, and, and that's, um, it's maybe the first time that vocational education has been given a real importance. Is in, is in the 1960s, and perhaps the problem was they could remove the formal inequalities that vocational education had suffered under, but it took much longer to change attitudes. And they, but they did set up um, in the the predecessor to um, on, on Cairncorlia, which was the um, ultimately the, um, uh, the 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 is the National Labour Board, the, the predecessor to to to, to Anco. Uh, and that was designed. That, that was designed to promote apprenticeship, and vocational schools were then seen as an avenue to apprenticeship. And that's, I think, where the RTCs were really important. I mean, the, the RTCs originally were meant to operate both at senior cycle, second level, and at third level, and they were they, they were meant to supply a missing rung on the ladder. Uh, that there was no, as Carol said, there was no, there was no sort of way of getting from a vocational school to higher education. Uh, in most areas, maybe to the, in Dublin there was, um, where there were, there were colleges of technology, but in most areas of the country there weren't. So in that sense, the changes had a transformative effect for students in rural vocational schools. And then also going back to the point that, that you made, in the longer term, I think the changes of the, the 60s had a, a liberating effect on the VECs because they were able to participate in the community schools as a joint venture with, with secondary schools, and they were able to take the lead in setting up community colleges. So in a sense, that the vocational schools might, not, might never have fully kind of recovered from the restrictions that were placed on them, but the community college sector emerged as a flourishing sector within effectively public post-primary education from the 1980s on. Just, you know, Germany is often held up as a model for this kind of parallel, you know, technical apprentice-based technical education, and then you have 
the more academic uh, education. But I mean, many of my German friends will tell me that it, the problem with that is that it's a bit like the, the 11 plus, that things are streamed when the kids are quite young. Mm. And then once you're in, the, in the, the technical apprenticeship stream, you're stuck there. And there, there is a division between the two. That's what mm. they, they tell me. I suppose sometimes you can almost see that in, in secondary schools in terms of uh, streaming by grade. Mm. And so I went to a big community school. We would have had nine classes in our year. Um, but you were streamed from primary school into mm. terms of mm. academic mm. ability. And then the kind of subjects then that would be offered to different classes in terms of more practical subjects. Mm. It's kind of informally can happen, I think, in the system, in the community school system. Um, as I experienced it. Anyway. Anyone else from the audience want to come in here? Because we're, we're, I'm just looking at the time here. Yeah, if just, yeah. Sorry, just like to... Hold on, use, use the, the microphone so we can hear, we can hear you. Yes. Um, so, thanks. Just in relation to all of this, I'd like to go back to the point that was made about the new models of patronage mm. and what was happening around the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, the whole thing about community schools, community colleges, there was a massive difference between community schools and community colleges. The colleges mm. were the VC system, but the schools actually were still a continuation of what was there yeah. beforehand. And a, a report that I've been trying to get my hands on that I just can't was the fire report, which seems to me to be like a report that has actually been hidden and put away. And it was in that report, from what I remember back at that time, was a recognition that the religious were actually dwindling. Yeah. And if they were actually going to retain their control within education, that the only way they could do it was actually to move into the new community kind of school system. And there were places in the country, like for instance in Bray, yeah. there was a huge murder between St. Killian, when St. Killian's was getting off the ground, the community school, and the, and the whether it should be a community school or whether it should be um, a community college. And it was, you know, the forces at work um, and how the church operated on the ground to, ins to ensure that it was actually a community school. And this was in a Greenbelt area. And they brought in um, religious orders, the Franciscans and the Maris, from who had never been in Bray before, so which was kind of very different than what was happening in maybe a town like Westport, where you had, you know, the Christian brothers and the nuns and the, and the VC school all coming together. But this was actually a conscious decision to retain the religious in the control of the education of the second level education system. And I think the question that has to be asked, going back to the 1930s, is why exactly? did the department enter into um, negotiations with the Archbishop to ensure that the VEC schools kind of only went to a certain level and had high walls built around them and whatever, like, that is the question, like, what was that and what, how did it continue on? And we can actually see that very, very clearly in relation to the control system that continued in the 70s. Yeah. I think, I think it's impossible to underestimate uh, the power of the bishops. Up to the up to the 1970s, and particularly in the 1930s, it was um, it was seen as impossible to legislate an education without taking account of the power of the bishops, and that's also true, say, in 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 higher education when when the British government set up the National University of Ireland, that was that was done on the basis of 
uh, very tight negotiations between two men, Augustine Beryl, who was the Chief Secretary, and uh, William Walsh, who was, was the Archbishop of Dublin. Doesn't get as bad a rap as McQuaid because he was in a different, uh, different, different era. But, uh, and then similarly, the Vocational Education Act, the, the, the government perceived it as the price it paid to get the Vocational Act accepted by the bishops was that they, they, they ensured that vocational schools would not pose a direct threat to the academic secondary schools, which were overwhelmingly linked to the, to, to the church. So unfortunately, it was about power. And similarly then with the community schools that, again, they, they wanted to get, when the comprehensive schools were introduced, the, um, the bishops were very suspicious of comprehensive schools because they were seen as state schools. And as a result, only 17 comprehensive schools were, 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 were established in the end. Uh, so the, the community schools plan was, it was designed to bring through the comprehensive curriculum same curriculum as the comprehensive schools, but in a way that was acceptable to vested interests within the system, um, especially the bishops. And that's what led to a lot of rows on the ground. Tallow was a good example, one of the first, mm -hmm. where, where the, the Catholic Church was allowed to nominate the parent representatives. And the parent representatives, it was an early example of parent power. The parent says, no, we nominate our own representatives. And the legislation was, or the, the, yeah, the, the, the deed of trust was eventually changed. Can I just throw something else in here? Um, it, once, once the free educa education comes in, obviously the numbers going to the secondary schools expand, right? Oh, yeah. um, now, inevitably, that means then, the, 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 in terms of the clerical teachers in the schools, there's going to be less of them to go around. And I suppose in the 60s, it may not have been obvious that there was going to be a, a, a manpower problem for the church. My question is then, to what extent then did this contribute to the secularization of Irish society? In other words, did you an expanding education system and uh, where the cadre of, of uh, clerical teachers was actually contracting and was to contract, you know, hugely uh, in following years. Uh, I suppose 66 is the peak year for vocations, but even then they're mm, worried. Interesting. Uh, there is a lot of reports about um, young people taking a vocation but not lasting, yeah. that they have too many uh, other options in their social lives, that they have disposable incomes. Um, and that there, and now there will be different forms of education, of course, that will, so they can, they can see the writing on the wall in that regard. And I suppose in some way for those um, vested interests who aren't in favour of free education, I'm thinking the Council of Education Port of 62, mm. which does not recommend free education because from their point of view, they can't provide it because they don't have infinite numbers of, of people, so if they can't control it, they, they're not safe. Yeah, because I mean, I, when I went to Temple College in 1970, right, I mean, 90% of the teachers were relay, even at yeah. that stage. Mm. And that's, that's a fair bit back, you know? That's, yeah. And what kind of college is Temple College? What well, was it Holy Ghost Fathers or Spiritans, as they now call themselves? Yeah. It was a pretty standard uh, um, Catholic school. Mm. Very good school, though. I mean, oh, of one, course, one of, of course. Uh, of course, you know. <laughs> uh, no, no, but, no, I say that because, uh, I mean, it, it's easy to give the, the church a kick in over this, right? Oh, yeah. But the point is, presumably they had their own ideas about the development of society, yeah. including economics and all these other things. Well, it's actually worth I'm taking up just the point about the, the fire report. And I think what you had was um, uh, you had expanding numbers from the late 60s onwards at the same time as a decline in vocations. So mm. what you're looking at, I, I suppose, I, I don't think the educational, the educational policy changes in the 1960s 
weren't motivated by secularization. They weren't driven by a desire to well, secularize the system. It was unintended consequences. I mean, it's but there were, exactly. unforeseen. Yeah. There, were, there were unanticipated consequences. And it was combined with, I suppose, the, the impact of increased affluence as well, the kind of liberation of the mass media. I mean, this was the era where you know, the, uh, Gay Byrne was seen as a radical at the cutting edge of, cutting edge of social change. Don't laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Oliver J. Flanagan said there was no sex in Ireland before the Late Late Show. Uh, after some famous round, the Late Late Show, the Bishop and the Knight episode, wasn't it, in 1966. And then you had the beginning of a decline in vocations. So there was a number of factors driving gradual secularization. And I think the Catholic Church is among the first to recognize that. The fire report says, well, we're not going to be able, in the, longer, in the medium term, we're not going to be able to stay involved in schools to the same extent. So we need to find ways to maintain the Catholic ethos in schools when schools are gradually handed over to lay control. Um, I just add to that, I think we have a tendency then to see the Catholic Church as this kind of bastion of tradition. And we see it as a moderniser in the 19th century when it's uh, involved in education Mm. and involved in institutions which at the time seem progressive and then by the 20th century they're seen as backward and out of touch. But of course they're not. They're well able to reinvent and see the writing on the wall and reimagine and... uh, be very modern in their in their approach to things. I suppose that's what they do with with education. A good example of that is is McQuaid. Mm-hmm. I mean, McQuaid both his reputation is as a sort of dyed in the wool conservative, deserved in in many ways. But McQuaid both accepted free second level education and encouraged many religious schools to go into the scheme, and was was involved and strongly encouraged Don O'Malley to go for the university merger. And both were innovative measures, but in pursuit of traditionalist objectives. So what was McQuaid's objective with the merger? I mean, we're not here to discuss that tonight. It was that he thought the merger would subsume Trinity College within a new university, which would dilute Protestant and atheistic influences in, in Trinity. Mm. That didn't work, obviously. But uh, <laughs> uh, Frank, I want to go to you. Just, just, you've painted this kind of a, a, vir- a virtuous circle, right? Once, once education expands, that kicks into the economy in terms of skilled work. If you look at the, the projection, the, 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 the Irish society and economy in the 70s and 80s, particularly where, where some of the older industries begin to go to the wall and so on, right? Whereas, and where the expense of the state in educating it is this expanding education system, but it would have seemed for a period that we, we weren't get the, getting the dividends from this virtuous circle. Right. I mean, so if, you're, if you were to stop, say, in the mid-1980s, think, this hasn't worked out. Like, emigration is back, unemployment is 20%. There would be a massive bill for educating these people who, who are still going abroad, and the traditional industries are collapsing. The whole thing's gone pear-shaped. Yeah, yeah. So economies are complex systems, I need hardly say. So in the 1980s, when you know, when we had a return to massive emigration, my God, at least it was a different kind of emigration from what we had in the yeah. 50s, because the people who were leaving Ireland, going to London, were educated, so they were working in financial services rather than on the building sites. So that was a major achievement for the people who were leaving, and it's something I'm proud of. You know, we, we don't like to look at a decade like the 80s where there was a return to emigration, but boy, it was so different from the 1950s. Um, but when I say an economy is a complex system, so you, you really need a lot of cylinders firing at the same time to get things right. So education on its own is not 
not enough to stimulate the economy because it can just lead to emigration, you know. And so you need the kind of industrial dynamic working as well. So what happened in the 1980s is we just, you know, we got the, the macroeconomics wrong. We ran up a huge debt and, uh, and the world environment wasn't conducive, you know, to a, to a buoyant Irish economy. So just a lot of things went wrong in the same way as in the 1990s over the Celtic Tiger era, just a lot of things simultaneously went wrong. Right. I mean, it, it, does it then begin to fire on all cylinders in the 90s then? The, the, the Celtic Tiger economy, as it's called, it, it does. But you know, to so we were we were doing things right. You know, so we really had the education system right to a large extent. Now I'm I'm and I'm sure we'll talk about it. Maybe I'm still very worried about the dropout rate from secondary schooling. It's still kind of close to ten percent. And given the kind of economy we have and the and the lack of labor market linkages between the education system and the work the workplace that they have in germany that's what's lacking so people who drop out of secondary school without a leaving cert today you know are in ireland are really you know consigned to not a very good lifestyle so i'm i'm worried about that but you know at a macro level we got we got we we, we got the education thing right we got industrial policy right and we got the the public finances under control. But then the, the other really significant thing that happened in the 1990s was the creation of the single European market that was suddenly a huge magnet for foreign direct investment into Ireland. So kind of everything went right in the 1990s in, in the way that everything had gone wrong in the, in the 1980s. So simply getting, getting your educational system right for the economy is not enough to generate economic growth. You need, you know, as I say, you need a lot of circumstances working together. What about the, the, that broader that's a philosophical point I made earlier, right? Um, if you're living in an in a, in a, in a increasingly secular uh, society, right? You know, where uh, form religion is in decline, isn't there a need for, for to replace with something else? I'm talking about raising the culture level of people. You know, I, I'm just trying to get away from the purely the economic arguments sure. here, right? What sure, yeah. but exactly, what's education for? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even you know, so so T. K. Whitaker, who died this last year, Ireland's most famous civil servant, he he um, he wrote essentially or edited a number of reports on manpower policy in the 1960s, and was always careful to point out, you know, that there is an economic argument for education, but that the main function of education doesn't have anything necessarily to do with economics. It's expanding the range of opportunities that people can from which people can choose from themselves, you know? So even I, as an economist, you know, even though I'm here basically mm -hmm. to talk about economics, I'm well aware that, you know, that education that's, is that's infinitely not, more about infinitely the more than economics. third level institutions now, is it? Uh, well, I don't know. I studied economics at, you know, at, at university and I had plenty of time to indulge my love of poetry and drinking and carousing <laughs> and music and everything else as well. Yeah, so, that's, a, that's a long time ago, Frank. <laughs> no, no, I think John is right here. Some things yeah, haven't yeah, changed. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it's a very modern idea, though, a very recent idea to think about education as being something that would make you critical and would give you self-fulfillment and give you options. Like education was always linked to churches, historically, going back to the early yeah. modern period, that it That's was right. to inculcate and spread religion and the established churches, the state's 
in Europe brought on the established churches to provide that service. Yeah, but they can't control it. You know, the education, you educate people and you can't control what they're going to think yeah. about. You know? influence them though. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. in terms, I suppose, of maybe a, a very traditional approach to education in Ireland and how slow that is to change, who educated the politicians that would then make the policy? What schools did they come from? This idea mm-hmm. of a kind of a system and how tight it is. I suppose as somebody who teaches in a university now, you know, they're the students that are there, they're from a broader society, you know, and mm. neoliberal values. People are still attracted to do arts degrees, but they will see you in the RDS at the open day and they're still very anxious of what job mm. will, yeah. it will get them. I think it's for, as well, though, it's important to remember, higher education has always had a strong vocational element. I mean, a, a, mm. a lot of the early universities were about um, vocational preparation. Now, voc- vocational oh, no, no, preparation with that. for the profession. If it's a oh, no, I'm, not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong yeah. with it. I'm just saying historically, mm. there's nothing new in there being a strong economic focus in, in, in higher education. But where I maybe I, I would agree is that I think there's a big difference between the, the positioning of policymakers in the 60s and 70s and, and today. I think policymakers in the 1960s and 70s, whatever their faults, and we've alluded to some of those, had a much broader view of what education was for. And they had a much greater sense of um, education, not so much for the individual, but for like societal benefits of education, and to some extent education as an engine itself. Whereas I think uh, far too many politicians and political elites today are focused on the school and the university as an engine of employability, as an engine of the economy. And that, there's a very reductionist view of education out there. Um, and I suppose that we feel that in arts and humanities departments that, you know, we are, they're not looking at us as the great no. creators of employable citizens. So in terms of being in the university, we're under tremendous pressure. We don't bring in enough money. No, I'm just yes. looking at the time here, guys. No, this is science, the truth be told. Uh, and if you have any questions, guys, now's the time to get your spake in. Just on the question of um, cultural education, Tommy, um, I'm a writer and very often I'm asked, why do we get this incredible flowering of women's writing in particular in Ireland, you know, mm. from the 70s on? And my first answer is free secondary education. Because before that, it was the conservative teaching the conservative. And I'm um, very interested in a number of, well, great points, but just when you spoke about, uh, Carol, about the, um, the, the change of the so- uh, perception of the change in the social contract in Britain and then how that very, very, very slowly filtered through here, through to here, and I think possibly through the Northern Ireland, people must have been aware of it. Um, I'm losing my train of thought here. It's okay. Uh, it's, um, the, the, where the writers came from. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it, was, it was quite another point, actually, I've forgotten yeah. it, so forgive me. Yeah. <laughs> I was distracted. The, thy sins are forgiven thee. Yeah. <laughs> Just here and then here. I think we'll. Oh, you don't go back to Maya then. <laughs> Just before that, um, I wonder, as well as resistance to the church, uh, from the church to to um, to uh, relinquishing control over secondary education, um, do you, does anybody think there's a factor in in um, that so many of the teachers working in schools were themselves the scholarship boys and girls? And they, they had been a minority who, who had come mm-hmm. through. And they just didn't get it that education was a right 
for everybody. You know, the, yeah, yeah. this lady here was saying, you know, the nuns were saying, oh, you know, we're not going to take the riffraff. I'm just wondering, was there a significant proportion of secondary school teachers, for instance, who were equally resistant? Because, I said, they had, they had to struggle through. They were, the, they were a minority who got through. I'm just wondering, do you think that's a factor at all? Yeah, the quick, quick answer to that, John. Quick, quick one. Quick one. Um, the lay secondary teachers who made up the ASTI in the 1960s were the closest allies of the Catholic bishops. So I think there is something to that. Yeah, certainly they, they had a, more, a much more conservative approach than either vocational or primary teachers. Just take, so take the mic there, could you? Yeah. From the 70s onwards, um, you know, the student revolution and UCD and all those yeah. kinds started coming in. Sure. And boy, did that create huge ripples. Yeah. Particularly, I think, in men's schools, funnily enough, rather than in women. I think more women were conservative. But it certainly had an impact in some... If you take the country as a whole, it had an impact. Mm -hmm. If I understand correctly, the attendance in secondary school jumped dramatically. Doubled in overnight. Four years, yeah. And I'm wondering, where did the teachers come from to teach this huge population? Yeah. They were already training increased numbers of teachers, but actually particularly at primary level. Um, and there, there was a big, I mean, there, there was a huge, uh, you could say a revolution in teacher education in the, in, in the, in the 60s and 70s. And the, the teacher training colleges were transformed into colleges of education. Um, primary teachers were able to get a university degree for the, for, for the first time. And also schools of education, which in, in universities, which took the lead on, on secondary education, uh, expanded quite, quite dramatically. So that, that was a, teacher supply was a key issue, for sure. Just, just yeah, that's the lady there. Uh, two quick questions. Um, first, firstly, I'm surprised no one has mentioned uh, the term social class and the impact that the expansion of uh, second level education had or hadn't on social <coughs> class in Ireland. That's the first question. The second question is more difficult to frame. I mean, given that Dunna O'Malley, even given, I know there have been provisos mentioned tonight about um, the myths around mm. His, his announcement and so on. But the fact that it was introduced virtually overnight or within the next year, I mean, you can't think of anything, it would be hard to think of a contemporary policy that, that would be introduced overnight or within a year that would be as wide ranging. Mm. And one that strikes me is given the rise of the robot and the change in the industrial societies in, in our contemporary times, um, you know, you can't imagine, say, universal basic income being being announced and introduced next year. Something like that would be uh, it would be hard to imagine. Yeah. Um, so, in that sense, I think the panel have been a bit um, critical of the O'Malley, not giving him enough allowance for how dramatic a. Mm -hmm. A policy change, given that most of our policy is incremental in yeah. our in Ireland, everything is incremental. Um. Sure. You want to come back in that, John? Yeah, sure. No, I think that's a it's a good point. I mean, I think the uh, I wouldn't underestimate Don O'Malley's impact. Like, I think, in fairness, uh, there's no question he had a huge impact on the the scope and timing of the initiative. I, I, what I would just draw attention to is the wider context, and actually the transformation of the post-primary system 
was an incremental process, or it was at least an evolutionary process. So it was happening, say, from the mid-50s to the mid-1970s. Uh, it, it was a process that happened over 20 years. It's true free, free um, second-level education was introduced very quickly. And of course, the vocational schools, as someone pointed out, were, were, were already free. Um, the comprehensive schools were intended to be, to be free, so the challenge was to introduce it in what they called the general run of secondary schools, and they did do that very fast. And I, I do think you, you have to give, it's fair to give credit to policymakers for their ability to put through major administrative changes quickly. There's no, no question about that. On class, I don't know, maybe Carol might like I to come back the, on that one. The yeah. person we didn't mention is yeah. George Colley and his attempts to mm. merge vocational and secondary schools. Like in terms of social class, I suppose if the vocational uh, schools were the place for the working class and then the, yeah. the secondary schools were the middle class preserve, I suppose something about um, universal systems, it takes time, but it becomes part of the norm that everyone will go to post-primary school. And actually in the 60s, Employment doesn't really grow, even though economic growth is significant. Employment kind of plateaus. And in terms of unemployment, the rising levels of unemployment are amongst the unskilled. So it's yeah. in the 60s, it's, if you have a secondary school education, it will get you a certain kind of job. Vocational education will get you a job. Primary will get you a job. But from, I suppose, the late 60s into the 70s, to get any kind of job, you're going to have to have something more than a, a primary school education. Yeah, but but it just if if I can say something on that, I do know that with the intro, introduction of um, free secondary education, there was a broadening of the class base of the pupils attending secondary school. And the reason I mentioned regional technical colleges uh, earlier on is that precisely that they had a different class basis from the universities and again a broader class class base so the, when, when they fed through the second system the fact that the regional technical colleges were, were there um, afforded them an opportunity and given that they were funded by the EU, you know, it was a cheaper option than, than going to university. So it opened up opportunities for people that would not have the wherewithal to be able to attend university. Okay, listen, I'm just we're out of time here, guys. I'm going to have to wrap up here. I mean, this has been a fascinating discussion. And one thing that strikes me is that people are much more aware of the issues involved in education, whereas I think it would have been, mm. you know, a kind of just an assumption that the system was there, like nobody thought about it. It's very clear that there are, there, there are very clear ideas here on this. Um, I'm going to have to wrap this up. Um, I'd just like to thank uh, all our speakers, uh, Frank Barry, um, John Walsh and Carl Hulan. Um, also, I'd like to thank you, the audience, in particular those people who, who contributed from the floor. Um, our next uh, History on Head School will be